Welcome to Making Conversations, a podcast from makers Gemma Millen and Robin Galway. For today's episode, we are speaking with Potter Babs Belshaw. Hello and welcome to episode five of our second series. We are halfway through this series that has been kindly supported by the Arts Council of Northern Ireland thanks to their Artist Emergency Programme. And today in this episode we are making conversations with Babs Belshaw. Hello. Hi. Hi. I met you when we done our maker meetup in February which I'm really grateful that that happened because everything went just a bit mental afterwards. One of the last sort of out things I did and then <laughs> COVID happened and I was like oh I'll never we won't have those things for a long time and it's very yeah. sad yeah <laughs> I know really good I really enjoyed that oh okay. good it was really lovely to finally get to meet you to put like a face to the Instagram profile or whatever Thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah. but it's nice to see you again <laughs> so you are a potter you do production pottery and you have your own studio as well that's what you're working out of at the moment so I it's probably three or four years ago I was doing this part-time as well as working for another potter in Dublin Caro Art and then so I was down in Dublin for three days and then I was up in Coleraine for four days and I sort of lived my life like that for probably three years and then we just my husband and I decided 2020 was going to be the year we're going full-time we're moving up here we're leaving Dublin and then corona happened but anyway we're grand sure we have space we can you know we're actually it's strangely been quite enjoyable because we've really slowed down after living such a busy life for so long so yeah so just in our garage at the moment is where I am making everything but we are renovating some outbuildings that were stables and like a barn to be a pottery with a big glass wall in the middle and the other half will be a cafe so amazing that sounds like the dream I think everybody (laughs) will agree definitely so how did you get involved in ceramics coming from Northern Ireland it's not really in our curriculum at all I don't know if it is now but it's not exactly a medium that people are really involved in from an early age so how did that happen for you? So I spent 10 years of my childhood in the Isle of Man and then when I was 14 my our whole family we moved back to Northern Ireland we were originally living in Hollywood so then we moved to Coleraine and my twin sister and I went to Limavady High School and we were literally, we had a year to do our GCSEs in it. Like, however, at the time, you know, it wasn't ideal. But anyway, we we're like, this is fine. Put our head down. We sort of picked the subjects one morning. I want to do these subjects. And we just started the next day and we did it. So part of that, I picked art. I'd always been interested in art, mainly sort of mixed media I really just like making things and I like making jewellery and that sort of stuff and then through high school there's a very good tech in Limavady that does a design crafts course so I heard about that and then I decided after my GCSEs I want to go there and just do art so it was through there on a Friday morning we had I think like two hours in ceramics I just loved it like I walked through that door and I was like oh well this is it this is what I want to do <laughs> I think I was like 16 I don't particularly remember but mum says she remembers picking me up going that's when you said you want to be a potter and mum was like all right <laughs> like sure if you want it you know like 16 
it might yeah. be a thing. And so then from there, you done your foundation and your, well, your national diploma and your foundation there. Yeah. And you chose to go to Cardiff. What prompted that? Do you have any connection uh, to Cardiff at all? No, I actually had never been. I mean, I vaguely knew it was in Wales. Like that was quite <laughs> as far as my knowledge went. I was planning on going to Belfast from, I think, the beginning of the foundation year. I was like, Belfast is great. I'd met people who'd done that before. And then my tutor who taught ceramics then, Gaynor, she said, there's a very good course in Cardiff. If you want to go for like an open day, if you can, you know, why not just to see what it's like? And yeah, I dragged mum along with me as well. And she, like, we were just walking around and it was just... It, I don't know it just had this sort of feel like it was at then when I was there it was in the old building it's now moved to like a new campus but it was really kind of old and there's like a ever the ceramics department was on the ground floor and it was out in like porter cabins around like a courtyard um it wasn't the most beautiful but it was so like messy and clay everywhere and loads of people sitting outside benches and having big deep conversations and I was just like this is it this is where I want to go so yeah I was very lucky I got in and I think there was about 30 in our year there like there was a quite a strong underlying fine art kind of side to it more so than production pottery which was really good to then learn why am I making this what do I want to say with my work that was very good and writing and having crits and like it was very progressive in that way but mm. you were kind of left a bit to your own there wasn't someone there going this is how you make a handle this is you know that sort of thing so you kind of did have to teach yourself quite a bit through that but yeah, yeah it was really good I really enjoyed it. Brilliant and how did you find having being slightly more self-led? I know I went and uh, there, I had part of my course that was self-led and I find it was a bit easier than once you left because you didn't have instruction you kind of could be a bit more independent with that learning. How did you adapt with that? The bit I really found hardest when I left was the community so mm-hmm. we had our own little workspaces and I had my wheel beside my desk and but there was in the they were called huts I was in hut one and we had this kind of little family going on Um, but there was the mixture of the three years were all in the huts so if you were making something or you had a really bad group crit and you didn't know what your reading was or whatever and you could just chat to someone over the you know as you're making your cup of tea and then yeah that community was very hard once I wasn't there you know it was like oh well who did I talk to or even bouncing ideas I found very difficult when I first left. I definitely think the same way about that because I went to Ulster. I did also apply to go to Cardiff because I heard that in Cardiff that they had a fantastic degree there specifically for ceramics a great space as well and was Claire Kernane was she a lecturer there did you get taught by Claire Kernane? Yeah yeah so there was and Ingrid Murphy, I don't know if you've heard yeah. of her, she's from Cork. Um, she kind of ran the ceramic department and Claire Kinnean, she was really good, but she was quite harsh. Like if you wanted a really honest review of your yeah. work, you would like yeah. book a tutorial with her, but she's oh, wow. very good. Did you pick the pottery wheel then in Limavady going into ceramics, knowing that you were going to continue on on the pottery wheel or was it something that as you were learning the skills of, in ceramics you fell more and more in love on the wheel? 
So in Limavady, it was mainly hand building. I think it was just the time was so little. It was just a quicker way, I guess, of experimenting. And then we had, I think it was maybe one or two weeks where we ha- we could have a go. There was two wheels in the room. So we all had a go. And I really hated it. I was like, this is really messy. <laughs> I don't, I can't make anything. And I, I didn't like it at all. And then this summer between, before my second year, I helped out Adam Frew and when he was in flower fields. So I helped mm-hmm. him for a few weeks over the summer. And mm-hmm. I was just doing like cleaning and that sort of stuff. And he let me go on the wheel then. So that was the first time I'd used porcelain and worked on the wheel. And it, I just really liked it. I just, yeah, sort of clicked. And are you still using porcelain now? Is that what you yeah. Yeah. I sort of stuck with porcelain. I... And then the odd time if I'm making like plant pots or something, you know, not just for the garden and it's like in stoneware, I just, I don't know, it doesn't feel right. <laughs> it's very <laughs> strange. <laughs> your time in university then, what were you making? How did you develop your work then? So I was, by the, my third year, I had really got into the theme of people coming together and having you know a group around a table and the crack and the chat and families you might have like three generations and t- stories would be told and everything always around a table usually around food so this idea of well then at the end of the day there would be all this washing up to do and it would typically I don't want to say this but would be the women of the house would end up cleaning all this up and then there would be more crack and maybe wine So my whole theme was around making the washing up board of dirty, like they weren't dirty, but they were all piled up of cups and saucers. Mm -hmm. And I had really got into gas firing and reduction. Mm -hmm. So I just loved the the sort of energy of that flame and how it affected the glazes. And there's a real warmth from especially red iron. If you put that in a reduction kiln, it's just like magic. So that was kind of my colour scheme, blues and greens and some browns as well got in there. But looking back now, I I didn't have the skill to make what I wanted to. So I was battling, OK, well, I need to make more and more and more to get my practice up. But I had this idea of what I wanted to make at the same time. So, yeah, I'm glad I did it. It was really good. And we got to we went to Art and Clay with our degree show, which is in Hatfield. And then we went to new designers in London and just being out there and having people looking at your work when you just graduated was like really fun. Wow. And what was life like in Cardiff then? As I said, I did apply to go to Cardiff, but I lost the nerve about the whole moving thing. And I'm such a homebody as well. I was like, no, I'll just go to Ulster. (laughs) But what was that like? Cardiff, to say it was a culture shock was uh, like not even the word I'm looking for. Where I lived since I was 14 here in Coleraine, it's the middle of nowhere, like countryside, like you can't walk anywhere or whatever. You'd always be driving. And then in Cardiff, where our halls were right in the city centre, we went on nights out and you could walk home. And to me, I was like, this is amazing. (laughs) It was so funny. There was only one other girl in the whole of my year and sort of friend group who was Irish I think everyone else was English or Welsh so it was yeah it was really interesting just just meeting different people and being in a city and the Welsh culture as well is quite a sarcastic dry humour and there was a very good friend of mine Sam she was from Birmingham and the two of us sat beside each other that's how we got to become really good friends 
and there was a caretaker came in and said something and we were like I, I don't know what he said and then this other girl who's in our class Lisa is well she's from Swansea and she replied and we just presumed he was speaking Welsh like about this was our perception and he said something <laughs> like sarcastic and then Lisa's like did you not understand what he said and we we're like oh my god no <laughs> it just went over <laughs> our head at the beginning I thought everyone was being deadly serious and I was like people are really mean <laughs> but they were just their humor <laughs> so oh. I quickly learned <laughs> and being a twin as well you were obviously separate from your sister yeah. at the time what was that like just assuming that you're joined at the hip if you're a twin we (laughs) we moved at 14 to here so we started a new school we had no real understanding of school systems or we didn't even know what a transfer test was like we were completely blind to all of Northern Irish education so we came here we were terrified like we were very shy I don't think we spoke to anyone and we were both very tall so I remember like walking into school and the two of us being like heads and shoulders above everyone else. They were like, okay, we could do this. <laughs> then um, I stayed in the Mavadi for an extra year to do the foundation. And she went to Enniskillen. She did equine management as her degree. So she's very into horses and all. So that kind of gave us the first time we were kind of separate. But, you know, we were only a drive away. Like we weren't that far. Yeah, yeah. By the time I went to Cardiff, we kind of got used to living not beside each other. But yeah, we she came over and I would go over to hers and yeah, it was it was good crack. And then she went off traveling. So she, I don't know where she even started. I think she started in Australia and then worked her way around the world and did all South America. And then she's been now in Sydney, I think the last five years or something like she's lived she lives there basically Mm. now and so does my older sister so we've kind of just grown to you know be independent which is grand now but I remember at the time being like oh Jenny don't go yeah (laughs) yeah I'm sure that was quite traumatic it was different really are we good if she can you know they can come home sometime but I don't know whenever that will happen (laughs) gosh yeah it's also different now isn't it (laughs) crazy all these things you took for granted but and so how did you find graduation and coming home again when I graduated so I I met my partner he's from Cardiff so we got together when I was in my second year so by the time of my third year I realized I don't have the skill to be a production potter and that's Mm -hmm. what I wanted to do I want to set up my own studio and cafe or whatever at that time was sort of a pipe dream I then applied for Thomastown in Kilkenny which is like a real intensive production pottery course and I didn't get in I wasn't accepted so when I graduated and that was my only plan like I had no other plan uh, mm-hmm. so Thomas who's my partner he was like well look we'll just we'll move like we'll we'll go somewhere we don't have to go to Kilkenny and I was like but that's my dream that's what I want to do and then I think it was literally the week before the graduating ceremony I got a call from Gus saying we have an extra space will you come and have an interview so I was like 
oh my god like I was so nervous <laughs> I can't believe this was happening I think it was I did had my graduation and like the next day I was in Kilkenny it was very tight time and had my interview and I brought like a bag full of pottery off my graduation oh. show and <laughs> yeah it was it was really good it was very exciting and seeing the mill and how everyone gets on together and like the roles and what yeah I just I loved it it was really really exciting I mean it was hard work I'm not gonna lie but yeah it was definitely what I needed at the time but obviously it was meant to be yeah it just sort of happened I know it was crazy and what was it like there we know that you were weren't you studying there at the same time as Fiona Shannon yeah yes. and Claire Murdoch who yes, was on the throwdown we were all in that group so that was four years ago we graduated which is mental yeah it was very good it was going from a degree which was very art-led and freedom and kind of made what you want to do and you were very much well you're an individual and this is what you want to create so you have to do that kind of thing and then going from that to Thomastown where you start at nine you have a list of a hundred mugs of exactly the same and you sit the wheel until they're perfect otherwise nothing gets fired and you sit there and remake and remake. That first six weeks was like, oh my God, I just want to make and fire and glaze something because I had been so used to that. I did, I find it very tough because I kind of had to unlearn what I had kind of taught myself Mm -hmm. and forget that and then take tuition from the tutors and yeah, just really train your eye to be on every single form all the time. And like two millimetres was considered you're pushing it you know and it was like two millimeters I know it was really tight at the end of Thomastown do you leave with a full product range or is that something that you're developing along the way or is it a skill set that you can then leave and develop all of the amazing work that you've now come to be known for so the first year of Thomastown is very much production on the Monday morning like there was three tutors there was Gus Anne and Jeff and depending which week they sort of took one each on the Monday morning they would make I don't know like a vase or whatever so there's 12 of us on the course you would sit and watch them make 12 and you could ask questions and like take notes on how they do it so they give you one freshly thrown each back to your wheel and you sit there and you make exactly the same the same way to play for the week essentially so then that goes on for most of the first year once you get better and you get things fired once they get passed you can't just fart you know they come and critique them and the beginning I think I got about three pots through I was just like oh great thanks (laughs) I'll try harder whatever you got you could fire then you were sort of playing around with glazes and the chemistry and that sort of thing was also there so by the end of the first year we kind of had a like a mini exhibition but it was quite similar work to what we had been throwing so similar shapes kind of thing maybe we had done a few wood firings and stuff as well but it was quite basic so then the second year is a product development year essentially so you get to play you get to test as many glazes as you want and different kilns and techniques you can throw on a momentum wheel if you wanted like oh, wow. we, you could do loads of stuff and then you designed things so you would go along and you'd be like well I'll tweak that glaze with you know you'll do like a line blend of 10 different colors with a one percent increase and see what you like and what you don't like it's really really good 
you got so much information so quick because you were just focused on this all the time. That's when I discovered crystal glazes because I, I was still really interested in reduction gas firing, but I came to the quick realization I'm very lucky over the years I've collected bits of equipment. So I had an electric kiln and I was like, I can't then just leave and then have had no income for two years, essentially. Where is this magic gas kiln going to come from? So I was like, okay, I have an electric kiln. What's the, you know, exciting thing can I do with that? And then came across crystal glazes. So they're a type of a glaze, a traditional glaze. You don't want to run off the pot. You know, you want it to be a stable coating. And then crystal glaze, chem like chemically, is a glass, essentially, because there's nothing that stops it running. But as it's running, there's a lot of a zinc oxide, and that zinc makes like a nucleus. And as the glaze runs, that grows crystals. So it's like yeah. magic. Really, you just don't know what it's going to come out of the kiln. Like sometimes it could be nothing. Like you could have a whole kiln of not one crystal, and then you drop it by five degrees, and they're all crystals. Like it's just yeah. really good fun. But yeah, it's not the most practical <laughs> of avenues. I basically did about six weeks of just crystal glazes and researched every single magazine article I could find and found potters who did it you know without being like how do you make it but you know trying to get like little hints and tips from them and I didn't get crystals for four weeks and I was like what am I doing wrong I couldn't get this to work and then slowly tiny ones would grow and then built it up so because of that, that's why I really stuck with crystals. And by the my end of show that year, so I think it was like July, maybe, I just, that's what I did. I did a whole installation of crystal plates and it was really good fun. I really, really liked it. But looking back, maybe should have also thought about more functional work, but sure, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Is it crystal wine glazes or crystal glazes? Is it just the same thing? So, there's two. There's a crystalline glaze is kind of like the umbrella term of any glaze that's kind of sparkly, essentially. And then macro crystals are like the ones that I try to make, like the big single crystals. Okay. Wow. And is that, I know there's different types. There's like a bloom or there's like a frosted or, or something. Is that? Yeah. It's on the different temperatures. So you basically fire up as quick as you can to stoneware cone 10 temperature, so like 1280, 1290. And then you drop it and cool it as quick as you can to around 1100. And typically that's when crystals like to grow. Mm -hmm. So if you're right at the top of that bracket, then you get quite spiky frost kind of patterns. And then mm -hmm. if you're maybe in the cooler section, they kind of go more like petals. So is it more the firing schedule that determines the crystal or is it the glaze recipe or is it just a bit of a both? Or it's just magic. It's all three. I mean, it depends also what shape your pot is, um, the type of kiln. There's some people I know use gas to fire. I'm like, I don't even know where you would begin with that. Like there is so many variables. So when they don't work is really hard because you're like, oh, well, I'll cool it down. I'll put a bit more percentage of zinc in it. But then you just don't know what is working or what's not. So 
there's quite a yeah. lot of testing. As a non-ceramicist, obviously, yeah. what is the difference between electric and gas other than the energy source? I know that if you put some ceramics in and it's closer to the flame, it'll turn out slightly different. Is that the difference that you're talking about in terms of creating crystals and unreliability? Uh, yeah, like a, um, a gas kiln. And a gas and a wood kiln are essentially, you're using a fuel mm -hmm. to make fire and that's what heats your pot. So in order for the fire to heat, you need oxygen. So you can, in a gas and a wood kiln, you can sort of restrict the oxygen supply, mm -hmm. making the flame take the oxygen out of the pot, essentially. So certain chemical or oxides would have a lot of oxygen atoms on them. So if you're pulling that out, you're changing their colors, you're changing the way sort of look and feel of the piece. But a electric kiln is like a big oven, essentially you just heat it okay. up, it cools down. So there's not so much happening with the pots, essentially they're just, you know, it's more reliable, okay. but yeah. then crystals are kind of another ballpark. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Right. And do you need then a special controller for your kiln then to be able to do those cooling rates and to like a, is the um, schedule going up to that top temperature? Is there anything special about it or is it just all about the cooling? Pretty much all about the cooling. So my controller, I think had like a kind of the normal one you would buy with your kiln would maybe have three or four steps. So usually you would go up to about 500 and then a bit faster to top temperature and then it would just switch off. Whereas the one I got has 20 steps. Oh, okay. So yeah. like, I I mean, I would only really use 10 of them, but it's good if I was to go mad and put 20 <laughs> steps if I could. But I don't know, maybe I'll have some magical crystals then. <laughs> yeah, you must have a lot of kiln shelves. Have you ever had any major disasters during those glazes? I know that they're very runny and... Too many. And <laughs> <laughs> the worst. The worst thing I did was in Thomas Town. I think it was like the second kiln load I had done, and it was a small top loader that I had just kind of anyone could use it. But I sort of was like, okay, I'm going to use it three times a week, and if you really need it, I'm by all means help yourself. But that was just sort of my plan. And it was like the second time, and I opened the lid, and it was all sparkling crystals. I was like, oh, I've done it! I like this, and everything was stuck to the shelf without oh. fail. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like all down the sides of the shelves and I was like please don't be on the element like luckily it wasn't the kiln was all right but oh my word and the angle grinding for about a day stood in the cold shaving all this glaze off I was like okay this is my lesson <laughs> I need to yeah. make uh, little catchers so they're like kind of like a saucer that the pots sit on so you have to get the join of the two very close otherwise the glaze will seep in around and go everywhere so that's when I was like okay I need to spend more time making these little catchers so but it was a lesson I mean it was I'm glad I learned it then instead of now. And kiln shelves as well are so expensive oh my God, insane I know. just a shelf you know that you put <laughs> stuff on it, I should have like a whole exhibition of kiln shelves was like them yeah you, yeah. Do that. you would see um, some real real stories there I think. <laughs> are any of them salvageable whenever they you know pour over and you have to take them off the shelf or do you actually physically have to break them off? Oh, I sometimes you could get something off 
but I mean I'm kind of of the thing like I don't count my pots as finished even if they're beautiful and I see them in the kiln like oh that's beautiful I don't count it until it's off out the kiln sanded and polished because there's so many bits that you could take it off and it looks grand and there'll be a crack in the bottom or oh it's just ceramic so if they're stuck I literally just smash them off just okay. get it over with the cathartic yeah. experience get that out <laughs> of your system yeah can you refire them then so if you don't get the crystals there's sometimes I really struggle with some pinholes in my glazes like I'm doing something super stupidly simple where it's a white glaze on some terracotta the occasional one I'll have like a little pinhole or like there'll be little dimples or something and it's a bane of my life yeah. and <laughs> it's really frustrating Sometimes if there's loads of them, I'll give it a quick respray again, stick it back in and hope it won't like crack or whatever. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Can you do that with a piece that has a crystal glaze on it? Can you refire it again? I mean, you could refire a pot a hundred times if you were kept. It's just this thermal shock is what would kill it eventually. But I find the thing with crystal glaze is in order to get it to be really runny and flow off, my glaze is like honey, like it's so thick. And I basically just get as much possible onto the pot. Like they don't look pretty before they go in. (laughs) So when they're fired and it's like the shiny glaze, it's quite hard to get that glaze to stick on. Mm -hmm. So I find I, yeah, basically paint it on and then, heat it up with the blowtorch and put another layer and another layer and like sometimes it works I wouldn't really do it more than three times this is not really worth it (laughs) (laughs) unless it was something massive and I really really loved it but you could yeah you could reglaze things but yeah pinholes I get that a bit on my like mugs and plates still and I just put a little bit more glaze on and put it back in and nine times out of ten it's grand and yeah. it's fine. My kilns are usually made up of a percentage of recently yeah. glazed stuff and then reglaze. I'm the same. <laughs> I think what is it like potters are very grounded people because like, literally you're gonna break half of it anyway so. Yeah so can you do I know we're talking a lot about the glazing here but I'm just so yeah. fascinated in the technical aspect of it can you do it on earthenware at all or is it just strictly like stoneware is where it's happening I think you can there's a few working working in crystalline I think it's called as a Facebook group that is very good for just picking up tips and I'm sure there are people who work on a white earthenware it just depends on your glaze structure so I mean, it's 50% of frit, which is very quick melting, but that's kind of what you need. So I think it just depends on what levels of frit you have in your glaze. But I don't see how it wouldn't work, really. Yeah. I think okay. it could. Yeah. But I I love when I'm working, because I work with porcelain, so it's a very, very white, which then any colour on top of that really comes out. My recipes, they're pretty simple. Yeah, it doesn't really, you can't really start with the recipe. It's more how you fire it, how you apply it, where, what shape it's on. Like there's, again, so many variables, but definitely worth a try. I'd love oh, to yeah. see if you do it. I think it'd be oh, great. Yeah. Oh, no, I don't think I'd ever attempt it. Um, oh. <laughs> I did I did try it whenever I was in uni once. I was working with some porcelain and I did try crystalline glaze on a few very small pieces, but I just don't think that they were the right shape. And I don't oh. think that I killed it properly. And again, there's just so many variables and I gave up far too quickly, mostly because, you know, there's all those deadlines and everything. And I was like, no, this isn't going the way I wanted to go fast enough. So, yeah, I would love to be with Thomas time that I could just 
sit and do it because I think any other scenario I would have been the same I'm like no I'm not getting any result (laughs) I'm not doing this and is there anything that you need to do after it comes out of the kiln at all is there any treatment is it very porous is it food safe Uh, when they come out especially vases they because they're all on their catchers so that's basically attached with a very thin layer of the glaze as it runs off so I heat it up with a blowtorch and that kind of cracks the glass part but then that edge is very sharp so there's a lot of sanding and polishing and getting it really nice and clean. I always say it's not food safe because technically it's just a glass with like frosted crystals in so any sort of acidic foods or anything like that could you know stay in there it's not gonna you're not gonna be able to wash it essentially to get the bacteria out so on the rare occasion I make like a mug or something I put like a just a standard glaze on the inside and then maybe just put the crystals on outside yeah that's basically what I mean they're they're a decorative glaze I think but there's nothing stopping you if you you yourself <laughs> wanted to make crystals I mean go for it have a whole dinner set <laughs> after Thomas time then uh what was next what did you have lined up that was four years ago now I left Thomas Town and my partner he worked for Iceland the food company down in Waterford but we lived near Kilkenny and he was a store manager and there was a new store opening in Gorey in Wexford just after I was graduating so I was like perfect we'll move nearer Wexford and we'll look for somewhere which has like a shed or something and I can just be a potter and that was my plan the you know setbacks and everything happened but there was literally again one of these moments of luck this guy who was a potter himself came into the mill literally on one of our last weeks and said he's an English guy Jerry and he says I'm renting this house in Carnew, which is at the very bottom of Wicklow, but really not far from Gorey. And I have, there's like an old outhouses. It's a three bedroom house. I'm looking for someone to rent it. Is anyone available? And I I didn't talk to him, but initially, I think it was Claire Murdoch was like, hold on, I'll get Babs. And like, she came running in and was just like, you need to talk to this man. I was like, all right. <laughs> so then uh, we went to see it and it was like really reasonable to rent. And we we're like, yeah, perfect. No problem. We're moving in. But then, so I set up, I said, okay, brought all my equipment that mum was keeping in her garage, drove all that down, set up. We we're just like, okay, this is it. I'm going to be a potter. And then Thomas's store got postponed and postponed and wasn't working so he ended up working in head office in Dublin so he was driving up and down technically should take you under an hour but traffic in Dublin it was two hours each way so it was a long like it was a long time for him but yeah he said he was happy during it because we could afford to live there and then I really underestimated going from a very tight community because by then there was 10 of us and you know every like three times a day we had communal tea breaks we were like everyone knew we would go to the pub to get like we were really close really good friends and then suddenly I was in this area in this brand new house I didn't know anyone I was sat in a garage which had like a broken window and it was freezing and I was making these pots and I was just like what am I doing this is not by you know dream of doing this pottery thing so I did that till about January from so I, I really went for it and I was like okay I'll do a Christmas I'll do a market I'll 
you know, I, I went for it, but eventually I was like, this is not right. I'm it just, just didn't work. I just, yeah. So then in, I think it was the end of January, there was the showcase is a very, a big trade show in Dublin. I didn't go to it, but I did get a free ticket and I was really kicking myself. I didn't go, but one of my friends was talking to Caro, who's a potter in Dublin. And she was, Caro was asking Gail, uh, do you know anyone who's looking for a job? I literally, I like, I need an assistant to help. Um, and then Gail texts me and within two minutes I had rang Caro and was like, hi, I'm Babs, I need a job. <laughs> like real, <laughs> please hire me. <laughs> so then I went up for an interview as I have basically my son, but he is a dog. I, I am aware he's a dog called Harry. And I then walked went for an interview and she had these two dogs, Lilu and Gronya. And I was just, I was just like, oh my God, this is meant to be. So we were trying to be really like professional and like, yeah, we have a um, like a waiting thing. And if we get on, you know, we'll sign the contracts. But like it just worked. We just really got on really well. And all our dogs got on really well. And Perfect. It was really good. And literally it saved me because without that, I would have just gone, I'm not doing this. I'm going to just get a normal, in quotes, job, and mm-hmm. just do something else. So I then was driving up to Dublin as well three days a week and doing my own thing two days a week. And it was just, again, I was like, Carnew, as lovely as it was, and we had the house and the space, it just wasn't working for us. And I was just, I should have accepted it earlier, but I was just like, this, we need to move. We either need to be in Dublin and we, or we need to go somewhere and live and work in the same place would be really good. So then we did that for a year. We lived in Carnew for a year and I was, there was, I think it was in the summer, we were up in Coleraine with my parents and we were talking this through and mum and dad were just like, well, just move your stuff up here. And there was an apartment coming up for rent in Dublin and we were just like, it was the same price as our lovely big house, but you know, it was like, well, why don't we just do it just to see how it goes. But we did that for like three years and we were up here for four days, down there for three days. So it was it sounds mad, but it worked. Like we yeah. were just happy. We had kind of two lives, two of everything. It worked. Yeah, it was really good. So with working for Caro really taught me like the business side of it. So she's a slip caster, works in porcelain, but very illustrative work would be completely different to what I had ever done. Like I'd never slip casted anything before. And being like the thrower, I was like, oh, this will be dead easy. And within like two weeks, I was like, everything's come out wonky. I None of the colours are right. Anyway, I don't know how she put up with me for that beginning because I, re- like, I was really bad at it. But then with her, we moved studios to Harold's Cross and it was much bigger studio. And we started running classes. And I had this group every Thursday who stayed for like a year they just kept signing on I like we were really great friends oh it it was really good it was really lovely place and really good crack as well like really enjoyed it and she also did the RDS and the show and showcase every year and the flea market so just by being there I like picked up loads of yeah just information on how to do things and met friends through that and stuff so I was really good. I really enjoyed that. I'm a big fan of Carol's pieces. And oh, yeah. They're just 
gorgeous they're so lovely I love watching her make as well and we go into some people's Instagrams that you know they have different styles and they have different kind of energies and just whenever you go on there it's so refreshing it's so inspiring or something you know it's just she's got a lot of different stories and like she I didn't like I didn't know any old Irish fables like I just was never something I'd read or whatever and she was she would find these little stories of like a fox with a gold tooth and then suddenly this whole rain should come out and it was like I thought you were supposed to be having a day off and then she comes in with all these amazing ideas herself no, it's, yeah. it's just it's like a little magic land <laughs> it's very cool but then what prompted the move then that was a really hard decision so from that time when we decided I decided to move my studio up here and I and Tom as well he said well I'll stay working in Dublin until up here sort of takes off and then we'll make the move. And it did take three years, but we eventually did it. But I, there's, so basically mum and dad's house, there's, it's a Georgian country house that has like a derelict courtyard and stables and a little annex cottage. So they're like, they were never used. They were sort of falling into disrepair. So we asked mum, well, I asked her, I said, could I, here I'll just put my kiln and wheel out there like it's not being used and then the more we sort of were talking about it it was like this could be so much more like we could really turn this into a proper pottery and a cafe like a destination and have classes and exhibitions and like pop-up Christmas things that like we were just going mad with what we could do with this way so Early on, we realised it's a very big project. This is going to take a lot of time and money and we don't want to rush into it or do it half a half job either. So we met with an architect just to see, is it feasible? It's all grade two listed. So even getting a change of use, putting a skylight in, like anything, like even the gates were listed. We couldn't even move anything. It was ridiculous. But I mean, it was it was the other side of it like we wanted to keep all this history and heritage as well we felt that was going to be part of it so we got him on board and had drawings done and realized our entrance is too near a bend so we needed to put a new road in we needed a car park um disabled access like it was just the list was growing and growing and growing so Mm -hmm. eventually last when was that I think in October possibly yeah we finally got everybody on board and had the contractors, so many people, but we were like, we have to do this properly. So then at the beginning of this year, the work started. So that's when Thomas and I made the decision, okay, Christmas, I'm gonna finish with Caro. I'll see her right up to Christmas. I would do that, just drop you like two weeks before. <laughs> um, so we did that and it was really hard. I found it really hard leaving because it was like this place I had got so comfortable and learned so much and I didn't want to just go and do my own thing. But it really was the right time because, well, apart from Corona, like there's a huge amount of work I've had to do. Like I needed to basically start a new business and have a new range and like new everything. So I couldn't keep that up working there and doing that. And then Thomas, he, so I think it was February, he handed his notice in and he moved up at the end of March and had a job lined up up here. Yeah, then the world closed. So yeah, from the end of March, 
Thomas, myself and mum and dad have all been living in one house all together and I've been making pots and luckily as of last week Thomas has now has a job and he's got accepted into uni like it's just all ticking really, amazing. but yeah oh. it was kind of not the best time in hindsight to move everything but sure you'd never know those things though anyway how do you find sharing space then with your your family and having a studio and stuff there Gemma and I know that your mum is also a ceramicist yeah so mum she when we all moved here back when I was 14, she sort of started an arts class in Flowerfield in Port Stewart just to make friends and do something because uh, she was new to the area as well. So and then through that, we in the Isle of Man, we had a little small holding and rescued lots of endangered sheep. <laughs> so Aww. that's what then mum decided when she started this pottery class, she was like, well, I know the shape of a sheep's head from having so many pets so she just started making little sheep and then that grew into people buying them and yeah so she's done that ever since so the two of us shared the same space and we have two kilns kind of one each but we both use both of them and yeah it's just really good it's really nice just to have someone else down you know when I'm working yeah and us all living together was so we've done it kind of half of the week for the last three years so it wasn't completely culture shock but yeah it was there was a few times, especially because we couldn't even go anywhere, like you're literally stuck, like you can't, we couldn't even, like we walked to the road and that was about it. But we, yeah, we got there. We're mu- we're doing much better and now we can go out a bit more. I think, yeah, we're definitely still talking. There's no hard feelings. Wonderful. <laughs> it seems to have just affected everyone in different ways, hasn't it? I think being a ceramicist and maybe having your studio so local, has, for me anyway, has been a real saving thing. It did take some time where I didn't go in and I didn't make and that was more just because I closed my Etsy shop and I didn't want to really go down to the post office I have really bad asthma and the idea of a respiratory disease was just like no thank you Uh, (laughs) but then I kind of realized oh crap I should be making stock and yeah just maybe using this time probably a bit better and I did then kind of give myself a bit of a kick up the backside but do you find then that I mean it was it was 12 weeks essentially wasn't it that we were we still are not exactly fully back in to normality but it's getting there I think hopefully by the end of the summer we'll be out in the world but then so at the begin at the end of March when it was quite unlucky timing but Thomas he was coming up and down and this and Dublin had closed I think like lockdown happened there two weeks before it was up here mm-hmm. so there was one week he came up for the weekend and he kind of was like maybe I shouldn't have come up because I'm gonna I might get stuck here or if I go back down on Monday I'm gonna get stuck in Dublin and at that time they his office was still open so people were still going into the office and then the next weekend he came up and it was supposed to be his last week of work and he came here and he was like I don't feel well and we're like, oh, no, yeah. <laughs> quarantined him upstairs in a bedroom on his own. And there was another person in his office had also, I think the, a few days before, had said she didn't feel well. And then within two weeks, we were all sick. We, we're pretty sure we all had it. Oh, and it just like, it was the weirdest feeling ever, like an out of body 
within half an hour increments I could feel myself getting sicker and sicker and I was like this isn't happening it can't like you know you read these stories of people are asymptomatic and they don't know they have it and I was like but I just feel a bit like I have a flu or whatever and then by the time dad got it he got it really he was really bad there was mm-hmm. he was, couldn't get out of bed for about two weeks and then there was two days where we were like okay if he keeps getting worse we're gonna have to take him to hospital like it was we were like okay we're prepared yeah. he'll be fine and luckily touchwood the next morning he could sit up and he just turned the corner and we're like oh my goodness so overall we basically didn't do anything for about six weeks and mm-hmm. By the time Thomas was the first to get sick, then me, then mum, then dad. But so by the time dad was in the worst of it, Thomas was really feeling better. But we didn't like we didn't leave. We completely locked down and our neighbours were very good and brought us food and everything. But then that sort of made us all think like, why are we, you know, we need to take some time off. We have this is probably never going to happen again that we have this time to just do things we've wanted to do and like we started gardening and growing vegetables and we were clearing out cupboards and I started baking bread and then no one ate the bread so I was like I'm not making any more bread (laughs) (laughs) so we really just took like two months off we were just like no this is our break we're gonna have a holiday so it was really refreshing at the end of it it was I don't want to go back to running on that treadmill of you know, working all the hours every day and go, 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 go. Because I was like, oh, there's no fun in that. So it kind of, yeah, opened all our eyes to just to slow down, I think, which is, yeah, yeah. we're quite thankful for in a weird way, I suppose. Mm. And so obviously you were working on getting your cafe and pottery studio up and running. Yeah. Like how has that yeah. affected your plans, or your schedule or anything like that? So our schedule of works at the beginning of so that was given to us in January and like every month we've had meetings and updates and then the lockdown happened and everything was off site everything was locked up you know nobody was working so Mm -hmm. that delayed us by two months really but originally in the contract they had kind of added two months as contingency anyway so when we then they all came back on site they were like our deadline is October they're hoping to have the works done by and still we're still going for October we have come to the decision we're going to finish it we're going to kit it all out we're going to move the pottery in there but we're going to hold off with the cafe until next spring hopefully because it's a small space like it you know it's two stables and a garage like it's not massive it's an old 17th century building so if there's any social distancing I mean we'll get like four people in there so it's not really worth having it all open but Mm -hmm. if we're all up and running and you know it gives us a bit of time to get the pottery going and see the space and feel what it's like and then maybe around Christmas time we do like a pop-up weekend of like mince pies and carols or you know like something I know, I incredible christmas. so christmas mad honestly <laughs> yeah, it's like to have christmas mad. yeah that you've yeah. just oh got me so excited about christmas and like i'm always excited about christmas so yeah, i can vouch for that <laughs> yeah we 
both Robin and I have had Christmas days in like July's and June's and you know we <laughs> went to each other's studio I remember I went to Robin's studio whenever she was in East Belfast and brought a bag of porcelain and just sat in her studio and made decorations and like I think it was June or July well, um, Christmas cake so we had to have chocolate cake and pretend and it was yeah, yeah. and then Robin has came to mind is that, uh, yeah we are <laughs> Christmas mad but it's the best time of year for yeah. selling all the rest of the year it's just the time you need to use to make your Christmas stock and then suddenly you're like go 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 and also like I when I was working with Caro so the month of December I would just live in Dublin full-time because we had the shop open and we had classes and painting decorations and mold wide like we went full out for the month and just the excitement I mean it was contagious like where people came in and they had their list and they were like oh Auntie Bridget she'll like this she'll uh, we'll get that what about the teacher <laughs> like they just walk around the shop and you're just there rapping as fast as you can and you're just like yeah. thank you much Merry Christmas like it's such a buzz I love it I really do your project that you're developing now in these gorgeous stables what exactly is the plan I mean it started with I'll put the kiln in the stable and I'll make pots and then again it grew a wee bit more and then we're like again we're kind of so we're five miles between Coleraine and Garva on the main road but it is the middle of nowhere it's like really so I was like we need you know, people use cups and bowls and plates to eat from and drink coffee. And why can't we supply that as well and have like a real celebration of handmade ceramics? And if people are coming and using them, then they're that's more likely going to click and they're going to purchase something or they're going to appreciate it more. So then the cafe came in. And so my brother and his partner, they live in the Isle of Man. And um, still, they didn't move here when we were teenagers they're very like they're huge foodies I mean they're I think their hobby is coffee shops if there is a such thing like <laughs> they will travel everywhere and just go to coffee shops so they have been really great input like they're really helping us all plan it and mum again she's a big foodie so yeah we're we're really excited to get this going so that's when the cafe came in like well they're going to come out this far you might as well give them a coffee <laughs> and then you know so we've got a small menu where keeping it all local very seasonal we're big into growing vegetables and everything so we're yeah we're going to keep it as sustainable as possible um yeah so that's where that came in and then uh, Patrick the architect when we had a few meetings with him and like had no idea what pottery I mean it was like do you make tiles I was like no like cups and balls and plates that's what I make so like which I showed them what the studio I had like I've set up at the moment downstairs and he was like, okay, so we need the big window. We need you sat on your wheel in front of the window. And I was like, is it going to be like a zoo? Like, is it going <laughs> to be weird? <laughs> um, yeah, we need tables and we need old nails left in the A-frames. It's like, it's, so it's like, you know, you're sat in a barn. And all, like it's, I'm really excited to see how it's going to be finished. So then this grew again and again and again. So yeah, it's, it's getting there. <laughs> That is so inspiring. I can feel your energy just through the screen, keeping it so local. That is literally yeah. the dream. And we find also through the years, like the North Coast, there is, and hopefully with more people staying at home and staycations, and there is a really good coffee food scene 
around here and yeah I just think why not why not just have a nice sign and direct people this way they're up here anyway so so I don't think we actually named your mum your mum is Iris Belshaw <laughs> just mum your mum, she is very well known for making her wonderful sheep and her rams. But your mum is also involved in a project you are also semi-involved in, in the number four Queen Street, uh, yeah. which was previously number six Queen Street. Which is very right. So it was number oh, was four. It? Oh, sorry. And they've just moved two doors up to a bigger shop. So it's now <laughs> number six. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do also stop my work there, so I should have known that. You but... do. I've seen your work. It looks very good. <laughs> oh, you're too kind. Um, it's not a million miles away. It's like an orange drive, maybe not. So it's not that extreme, but I still kind of see it as so it's the other side of the world. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's it. Like we, but Thomas and I found, because we were driving to Dublin twice a week, we're kind of like, oh, we'll just go to Belfast for dinner. And this was before lockdown. And we're like, yeah, that's fine. And then even people in Coleraine, and they're like, you work in Dublin? I'm like, yeah, it's three hours. And they're like, three hours? And I'm like, oh, sure, it's just down the road. But I know in another year or two when I'm just Coleraine and don't go out Coleraine, I will then, I will be the same. Don't worry. You'll be like, how did I ever do that? That's mad. I, know, yeah. I, <laughs> I used to think it was mad traveling from uh, Newton Abbey to Belfast to Castle Ray to do my national diploma, my foundation, because I was like, oh, I have to get two buses. But you have, yeah, just blown that out of the water. Not but that's not normal. People shouldn't drive three hours <laughs> to work. That's not right. <laughs> how involved are you in that project then? It's quite a unique space that they have up there, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So it's, I don't know if it's quite like a co-op or it's basically about four or five, maybe six. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. People set it up. So they are all crafters and makers. And as part of setting it up, they don't sell enough one month, they would put money in to pay the rent or vice versa so if they have now moved down to shops and it's four times the size of what they were in this small one so they have just seen their sales fly which has been so good because it's really good stuff like all local very beautiful handmade like if you need a present it is the place to go and then the people who have set it up they can they sell their work with no commission so I just supply a, a maker and I then pay a commission before, you know, I get paid for whatever. But yeah, they're very good. And when, so when I was setting up this, the Blackheath Pottery, I, there's a guy, John Wright, and he makes lovely like lanterns. Yeah. And I was asking him, I was like, what sort of card reader do you have? And he was like, go talk to this person. And they'll sort you out, tell, say that I sent you. And then I was like, okay, and what about packaging? Oh, go to this person. Like, they're just this wealth of knowledge. Like, if you need any help, you just go in one day and they're usually all around. And yeah, it's great crack. And they're really yeah. nice people. It's beside his stall in Derry, mm-hmm. up at the Guildhall. And yeah. oh my God, can he sell work oh, that know. is... Like I had a queue in front of my stall for his stall yeah. <laughs> um, because he is just amazing at selling stuff. He just knows yeah. his product inside out anyway, you know, and every maker will, yeah. but he just knows how to engage the customer so well. And I think that's probably what his success has been. But yeah, I was very jealous. <laughs> I mean, they're lovely people, you know, but yeah, I was kind of like, God, I need to make what they're making. And there was one year I was helping Caro in the RDS and John was also in the RDS. And 
and literally you just saw him flash by like with two coffees and he was like hi can't stop like literally he was just they were flying these lanterns they were just you couldn't keep them on his table I was Mm -hmm. like how do you even do that but yeah it's amazing they're very good and there's another one Marion she I think she was an accountant before she makes scarves and ties and lovely shawls and uses lots of like liberty prints it's beautiful I really really like her work but she's again she because she has this accountancy numbers mind she is very on it so like she she's very good help like that side of things really was a struggle at the beginning I was like oh I just want to make pots I don't want to do this but yeah I certainly quickly realized yeah we need to be realistic this is a business so she was very very good help in all that yeah. As a maker, you just have to have all those hats on. You need to be the maker, which seems to just kind of take a back seat. What would you say <laughs> is the most difficult aspect of being a maker? Where to begin? <laughs> <laughs> I think at the beginning, the hardest thing I found was because, again, like the crystal glazes, I'm like a magpie. I'm like, I see something. Oh, I want to make that. I'll make that. Or, oh, I need a teapot. Oh, let's put them in production. And then I'm like, I've only made five teapots this week and I'm like that's annoying so that's the bit like focusing it down to almost taking the emotion out of it to an extent of okay these are products this cost me this much to make it how do I sell it as if you have bought it from somebody else and you're selling it on that's kind of how I had to get my head around Mm -hmm. because otherwise I'm like I just I'll sit in the studio floating my day away and I'll make lovely cups and then you know I need to be realistic and because this is now my full-time gig and I you know I don't want to burn myself out in two years and be like I never want to make a pot again in my life so that's definitely the bit like just the learning curve really but I was very naive at the beginning I just didn't think that was oh, I'll be fine. Sure, I'll just put this price on it and it'll be grand. But yeah, I really should have at the very, very beginning sat down and be like, no, we're not charging less than this for this piece. Do you have a favourite making process or do you have a favourite item that you love making, you know, from start to finish? You know, as you mentioned, your teapots. Do you have a piece that you think you just really love making those pieces? So with my Blackheath range is very utilitarian like it's useful to be used every day but like I still want everything to be beautiful like this is my kind of my thing so the one thing I really love making is the large serving bowls so they're like a big pasta salad that you know that you put on the table and you have lots of people around and with porcelain there's a 20% shrinkage rate so when you're making it it seems massive and then by the time it's fired and glazed it's kind of normal size so when the studio is filled with serving bowls I like it just feels like oh I've made thousands of things because like every shelf is filled with these and they're just lovely because you can't rush them because they will just flop over and sit on the wheel so you have to really take your time and knead your clay really well Uh, yeah it's very cathartic making those the one thing I'm I mean I love still doing but after the 22nd I'm kind of like over (laughs) making (laughs) is probably mugs because there's a lot of steps to them like people are like oh it's just a mug like why why does that take so long 
And it's like, yeah, but you throw it, you turn it, you pull a handle, you put the handle on, you clean it all up, you put your stamp on, and then you fire it, and then you sand it, and then you glaze it. Like, there's so many steps to that where, yeah, it's it's different. It's all these processes you have to all factor into everything. Could you tell us a bit about your studio equipment, pieces that you've acquired over the years? Have you bought them yourself? Have you acquired them through funding? And is there anything else that you're planning on getting studio equipment wise for your new project at Blackie? So at the very beginning, when I was in the Mavadi, um, it was, I think, two Christmases and a birthday present all rolled into one. <laughs> it was like the only thing I was dreaming of was my own wheel. So it's like a Freema portable little wheel. And it's still going. It's still going strong. I've never had any issues with it. Touch wood. I mean, it's going to die. I've said that now. But anyway, so that was my wheel. Then my kiln, I, yeah, I saved up over uni and Thomas Tide. Like any, I had a kiln fund and it just all went straight in there. And luckily, by the time I was ready to set up, I had like just put enough in there. So got my own kiln then. And then I also use my mum's kiln, which she's had since she begun. I've never, I'm one of these people who I'm my own enemy. Like I find forms and that side, I find them very hard to do. I'm just, I'm not one of those people. I can't concentrate. There's too many boxes. I'm like, what do I put in all these boxes? I would love someone to sit beside me as I fill these out. <laughs> would be really good help. But so yeah, I've never, I've never got funding for anything. I did look into the Rural Development Fund for the cafe and the pottery. Yeah, there were so many, I mean, rightly so, there were so many hoops and things to jump through and quotes. And our project was so much bigger than I, you know, it just wasn't feasible. And the time restraints on that, it all had to be in before a certain deadline. And I was still, you know, having quantity surveys done and, you know, it just wasn't right time. But that was the only thing I've really looked into. I'm definitely I'm going to go for it and research more and try and get business plan developed. And yeah, I'm going to definitely explore that side a bit more if I can. Yeah. Could you talk us through your studio? You've got your kilns and you've got your pottery wheel. Are you looking yeah. so that you can do workshops? What kind of workshops? Is it wheel based or will it be yeah. hand building? So when I was teaching with Caro, it was all hand building. It was lovely because, it, you know, people could really get it. Like it was, you just wrap a slab around a circle. There's your kind of basic mug. And we had lots of fun decorating. So I've learned from that. I definitely want a hand building aspect. But I've in the plans, I've planned for another four wheels that are kind of going to slide under the central table. Um, so I have still space to work so in total five wheels so I can take small groups for throwing lessons and then the other thing that is my dream when we get there we get there is the pug mill like reclaiming is taking over my life (laughs) (laughs) a pug mill to mix all the reclaimed clay and just to make it lovely to throw with which I would love but yeah I'm always keeping my ear out for some secondhand equipment um so if anybody has a pug mill they don't want, you know, just send one my way and I'll pay for it. No problem. Thank you very much. But it is like hen's teeth sometimes, you know, there's certain pieces of equipment that just go like that, you know. They do. Oh, my, they're so quick. Like I, um, there was a few years ago I was doing the Potter's Market down in Galway. It's 
lovely oh, yeah. but it is outside like it's in mm. air, air, the Spanish arch so like you're right on the sea as it comes to go away and I was there I think it was a pug mill I was still looking for it like it went <laughs> back that long and I was like talking to people and I was like does anyone know of a second had pug mill and there was one person and they're like I think I might know somewhere and anyway it turned out not to be at all feasible but I was just like chasing this dream of this bug mill because I was like do you remember me I was talking to you in Galway uh like, you know messaging this person but yeah it didn't happen it wasn't meant to be. So what do you do to unwind then? My actual favourite place in the whole wide world is Benone Beach which like cost country from here is 20 minute drive which is really nothing for the middle of nowhere and apart from once lockdown was eased and then every morning I would be driving and I'm like where are all these people coming from (laughs) because like (laughs) nine times out of ten it's deserted there's like a horizontal ice cold wind but you know you just put your hat on and Harry my little dog and I just go for a big walk listen to podcasts and really good music and I just love it I honestly I think it's the best place in the world no, I've said that. No, everyone's going to go there. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> but you can see that in your work as well, that landscape, those blues, and then the greens have been in the country. You know, you can kind of see that feeling into your work, though. So would you say that that's a good place for you to go to shut off? Or are you going there specifically to kind of gain something, like some kind of energy or some inspiration? Yeah, I don't, I'm not really sure. I kind of, it's just part of my routine now I don't you know sometimes I'll get there and I'm like oh oh I'm at the beach like I just don't it's so automatic when I was about 16 I was quite unwell I had like a autoimmune virus so for about a year I like I managed to keep going to tech but they were very good they sort of let me work at home and you know do an hour here and hour there and literally I would the only place I would go would be sit in the car and open the windows with either my sister or mum would drive me there and just let the sea air in and it was just like this little bit of cab and I just remember like you know okay we'll do this tomorrow we'll do this tomorrow and then about a year and a half later I was getting better and it was really good and then ever since then it's just somewhere I just always go I just love I just love the beach. How much of a good boy is Harry in terms of being a studio dog because I have a dog (laughs) Cooper and And he is he is a good boy but he eats clay like yeah (laughs) whenever he was a puppy I had been I brought I used to bring him to Scarva drive down to Banbridge with him in my passenger seat you know he used to curl up because he used to be quite small he was a wee puppy um used to clip him in in the seatbelt set him on the chair and he would have fallen asleep put the heated seat on you know because I'm not cruel Uh, (laughs) (laughs) went in and got the clay I used to bring him in as well and he used to get so excited he had big floppy ears and he was really cute and then he got too big to bring and too big to sit in the passenger seat like he's really really long and he would have sat beside me and he would have been like the same height as me in the car so <laughs> and I was driving like a little smart car like a fortune and so it just That's looked so cool. rare me driving and then this big massive <laughs> basset yeah. beside me he was like taking it all in and drooling and oh. but yeah as a puppy he would have ate the clay he loves porcelain he's I think that's okay. his favorite to eat the best flavor but <laughs> yeah my friend Danielle we always she used to work in porcelain and we always used to say that porcelain is like the butter 
of the clay world, you know, because like you can get margarine or you can get spreads and stuff and it's not quite <laughs> yeah. as good, but porcelain is butter, you know. Yeah, and then now, because I started making a terracotta, he now eats terracotta and it's like, I... What? I don't I know I, what he thinks has developed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> More earthy now, you know, yeah. he, he really yeah. craves it. So I wanted to know how good is Harry for you being your studio dog? So at the very beginning, so Harry was a stray when we lived down, when I was in Thomastown, a very good friend of my mum's lives on a farm near Carlo. And we would go there every Sunday for a coffee. Elsie, she's proper Irish mammy. You wouldn't go home hungry. I mean, it was eat more cake. And I was like, okay, no problem. <laughs> so, and then she's very near the motorway and she gets a lot of like pet dogs turn up at her farm. Like she, people just throw them away. And I was like, oh my God, oh, no. I would. I would just keep them all. I'm just so soft. Like I couldn't yeah. cope. So there was one afternoon we were there having coffee and Harry, which she called Scruff, uh, oh, that we Scruff dog has turned up again. And he was terrified. Like he was this tiny little furry, scruffy terrier. And I literally, I just fell in love. And we were living in a rented house. We were both in full-time education employment. And I was like, we cannot get a dog. That is not fair to the poor dog, you know, anyway. So a week of me going, we need to get the dog. Thomas going, we're not getting the dog. And then I'm like, okay, we'll not get the dog. And then he was like, we'll go get the dog. <laughs> so we did. <laughs> and then I just went and picked him up and took him home and just had that moment of like, I have a dog now. What do I do with this little thing? And then if maybe a week later, he settled in, like he ter- was terrified, like the furry thing has obviously had some trauma. So then about a week later, Goss, who runs the pottery skills course, was having trouble with the next door neighbor's chickens. We're coming in and destroying all the garden and the plants that he has made. And he was like, you have a dog don't you and I was like yeah I have Harry did you hear you know because I've been talking about this dog forever and he was like would he scare off chickens and I was like well I can try I mean I think he will so I brought Harry in and within two minutes there was feathers everywhere chickens away and Harry sat at the back door like hi I'm here so from then on I used to take him every day to the mill which is where the pottery course is based and I had a little bed beside my wheel and he was the honorary 13th member and it was so good he was really good the only there was a few troubles he had was with workmen you know he would wear like work clothes and boots he I, I guess had a bad experience at one point like he would go for the ankles of a few people and after a while I was like oh my god I'm really sorry he's not, was n- not harming never broke any skin like he was he was all right but so there was obviously a few little things that I really had to watch but yeah everyone really fell in love with him and then because he was getting more confident and more himself like he had like little quirks and he used to love sitting and watching the river like in his own little world and, yeah oh. and then when we got the house in Carnew it was strict no pets no oh. pets this is our dream house we have like what can we do so I was talking over a tea break in the mill I was like this house is like, we have to move there. There's nowhere else I can, you know, and like property, finding rental property at the time in the South was a nightmare. Like you just couldn't get anywhere to live. 
So I asked Gus, would he mind writing just a letter saying he knows Harry and he's well behaved? Like that was like, I was like, let's literally, could you just please write that for me? And I can send that on to the landlady. And he wrote this really lovely letter about Harry's duties and the pottery and his oh. work ethic isn't quite up to scratch. Like it was just, oh, it was so Oh cute. my God. <laughs> And we were allowed to live there. She was like, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. It's just a small dog. <laughs> I was oh. like, after all this going, doing this route. So the one thing he does love is sponges. If there's a sponge, mm. like, he shreds them. Like, there's yeah. bitty yellow sponges everywhere. I don't know <laughs> what he does to them. But, yeah. But he's, really... yeah, he's very good. He's quite yeah. a quiet, natured guy. So, yeah. Just offended by sponges. Oops. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's good to hear because Cooper, no, he doesn't quite get it. You know, he's a really terrible studio assistant because, you know, he'll come in, I leave the door open. So it's at the end of the garden, he'll come in and I'm sitting like on my stool or something. He'll put his head under my arm while I'm doing something and I'll mess it up. He just wants attention all the time. And he loves it when the kilns are on because he, you know, you could set him on fire and he still wouldn't be hot enough. You know, he needs heat. We haven't set him on fire, but he... <laughs> uh, he's had so much clay he would just turn to ceramic so <laughs> please don't call our SPCA Gemma oh is God, a very please. good dog mom <laughs> now I'm going to edit this out like in a dog you know like cats are very yeah. loving things I think I that's it yeah, well, he's a scent hound, and I think he can smell heat because, like, okay. it's uncanny the way he can. Ju- he knows where there's something where it's warm. Like, oh, if wow. I, if I, yeah, if I like have a hot water bottle, or like if I, you know, have maybe just got up from sitting on the sofa or whatever, or you know, someone's got out of bed, he is like there before you can blink. It's wow. <laughs> mad. So and like he, he's it's not like he's close. He just appears and then he's like there. It's like Jesus. <laughs> He is a good boy. I really made him out to be, you know, like I hate no, him, but he's, he's very good. good. Yeah. I have a, a lurcher called Indium and uh, he is a rescue. He's relatively new. We've had him for just over a year. And as a studio dog, privately, he's great. But okay. he loves handbags and I am not a handbag person, so I didn't know this. But I had a workshop full of people in the studio and people had just left their bags round and that was grand and then all of a sudden I just you know your like dog spidey sense goes off and you're like he's doing something he's not meant to he had chewed through one of the participants handbag and like chewed all of the stuff inside her bag and I was like I'm so sorry I'm so sorry so both Cooper and Harry sound like absolute dream dogs by comparison the verdict's still out at the minute (laughs) and I was down with Caro so she has Lilu who's a collie and um Gronya is a greyhound Uh, Harry's just walking out the door he's just heard his name (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Gronya, she's a greyhound and she has that same thing so the three dogs and Cara and I would walk every lunchtime around the park and because she's so tall and this big long nose that sort of wiggles independently of the rest of her head and then you'd be stood at the traffic light and she would just have her whole head in someone's bag and you're just like oh I'm really sorry <laughs> she, she has like these and she's so calm and regal the way she walks but you see if she gets something that 
like an ice cream off a kid or something yeah. she'll just run away with it like oh my goodness <laughs> look what I've done well, a greyhound thing then that's good to know that's reassuring yeah. <laughs> but they're adorable I there's something so funny about long-nosed dogs <laughs> I just oh. love them but yeah and I love they seem to have really nice clothes like they seem to be yeah. like the model of like the dog world or something yeah. they're always and very well dressed lovely polar necks and yeah. it's like wow I love one of them <laughs> I'd love to be able to pull it off as well as they do though yeah. same same <laughs> what is the last piece of locally made craft that you have bought or invested in or who's been the last independent retailer that you've supported so I I got married last summer in August. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Feels all very weird being a wife and my husband. I'm introducing him as a husband and I'm like, that's weird. <laughs> but for our wedding, I got, so all the bridesmaids dresses were all like pastel colours because my two sisters live in Australia and Tom's sister and sister-in-law, one lives in Australia, one lives in England. So I was like, just sort your own dresses and you know talk amongst yourself whatever I'm grand so then for all the ties of the the groomsmen I got Marion in number six to make all liberty ties and oh they were lovely but all different colored shades pastels to match the whatever the bridesmaid dresses so that is definitely the last thing I made and Thomas wears his all the time because I was like I don't want to buy and invest in something that you're going to just wear for one day I mean there's no, yeah. there's no fun in that so at least these are like really quirky ties for all the guys so that was really good yeah it was, it was lovely I might go back to her and see if she would like make me I don't know like a mask or something because there's just really wow. lovely patterns she's gonna hate me now because I've said this on here <laughs> just like I'm not making them <laughs> what's your favorite book or so what's the, the last book. thing you read yeah, so I'm very into Audible with working in the pottery. It's kind of an addiction. And then with the whole movement that's happening around the world and Black Lives Matter, and I just felt I'm not educated enough in this topic. So I really invested in reading and researching. And the one book I honestly think should everybody in the world should read is well, two. Okay, I'll say two. <laughs> I couldn't decide between those. Is I'm Not Your Baby Mother by Candice Braithwaite. So good. Oh, my word. And even follow her on Instagram because she's really cool. And she's t- took up rollerblading. And I'm like, I really want to do rollerblading now. <laughs> but yeah, it's a very good book. And then the other one is Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge. Another brilliant book. So definitely for a bit of education but just to open your eyes and just take it in it's yeah it's mm-hmm. shocking but I think we can join the revolution I think we can do it 100% agree those are brilliant yeah. recommendations very very good well it's been absolutely amazing to speak with you today and to see you again for the second time in my life hopefully yeah. not the last I'm sure no. we'll all have another big party together Yes, I'm right up for that. And as soon as you get your the Blackheath pottery up, you won't be able to get rid of me. I will be there every day. <laughs> well, you could come in the pottery and make some stuff if you want. Oh, I mean, God. More no, than that. I will watch. Yeah. <laughs> if people want to get in touch with you or follow your making journey, uh, where can they go? So I am the Blackheath pottery across all the usual social medias. I have started a YouTube, which is a bit of a learning mm-hmm. curve. But yeah, it's getting getting easier, the whole filming and editing bit took a bit of work, but we're getting there. 
And then my personal crystal shiny objects uh, Instagram is Babs Belshaw Ceramics. So you can find me on either of those platforms. And I think Harry has his own Instagram as well, doesn't he? He does. Harry the Potter dog, if you want to, you know, get your daily beach scene in. (laughs) He's all about that. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really good. I've loved it. Thank you so much, Babs, for an incredible episode. We love speaking with you. And also thanks to the Arts Council of Northern Ireland who have kindly supported this second series with funding from the Artist Emergency Programme. For our next episode, we are speaking with jewellery artist Anne Earls Boylan, so don't miss it on Thursday the 27th of August 2020.